Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick, with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we start with a dive into evolutionary psychology and how biases have been programmed into you by millions of years of evolution. We look at why our guest condemns the concept of empathy, how science demonstrates that empathy has no correlation with doing good in the world, how empathy creates disastrous outcomes, and more with our guest, Dr. Paul Bloom. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 780,000 downloads, listeners in over 200 countries, hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious about how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Or go to our website, scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. In our previous episode, we discussed the paradox of happiness, why pursuing it makes you less happy, and what you can do about it. We dug into the research about what really makes people happy. We broke down happiness into its essential components and discussed how to cultivate it, and much more with our guest, Tal Ben-Shahar. If you want to live a happier life, listen to that episode. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Paul Bloom. Paul is a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University and received his PhD from MIT. 
He's the co-editor of the journal Behavior and Brain Sciences and the author of several books, including Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil, and most recently, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. Paul, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, we're very excited to have you on here. So for listeners who may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about your background and your story. I'm Canadian, born in Montreal. For a long time, I thought I'd become a clinical psychologist and treat children. My brother's autistic, which is why I got into psychology. But I began to become increasingly entranced with broader philosophical questions and experimental research. And so um, now I'm a professor at Yale University in New Haven. I study babies, I study adults, I study toddlers in between. And in between doing experimental research, I write books and articles for a popular audience. So I'd love to begin by diving into some of the research that you've done on babies, which I find really fascinating. Would you share kind of some of those findings? Yeah, absolutely. So this is work done in collaboration with my colleagues at Yale, particularly Karen Wynn, who's my, my wife and collaborator. And she runs this uh, infant lab. And we do all sorts of experiments on babies, looking at their social understanding, their physical understanding, and recently about their moral understanding, their, their understanding of right and wrong. And this might seem crazy to talk about a six-month-old having a moral understanding, but we discover some really cool things. So, for instance, you can show babies a one-act play where there's uh, somebody trying to do something, like trying to get up a hill. Then a good guy comes and gently nudges our character up the hill. And then another guy comes, a bad guy, and shoves him down. And if I was to ask you, show you the film, and you could look it online on my webpage, if you look saw the film, you'd say, well, yeah, one guy's a nice guy, the other guy's a jerk. So we want to see what babies felt about this. And you can't ask babies, they can't tell you, but they could do all sorts of things. So we find out that babies prefer to reach for the good guy than for the bad guy. They prefer to give treats to the good guy or versus the bad guy. They prefer to take away treats from the bad guy over the good guy. And that's just one example. We've done many, many experiments of this sort. And this finds that babies long before their first birthday have some sort of understanding of right and wrong. Other studies find that babies have some sort of compassion. Some, some, they, they like to help others. They like to support others. And, and so one body of my research explores the moral powers of the baby. At the same time, though, the morality we have inborn with us, the, the product of evolution, is in some ways very limited. Babies don't have a natural compassion for strangers. They are insensitive to sort of moral insights like the wrongness of slavery or racism and sexism. And so after writing my baby book, Just Babies, and after thinking about these issues, I began to struggle with the question of what makes us different from babies and what makes, you know, what makes a person a good person. And that led to a lot of my work now on empathy and the emotions. So do babies have kind of initial or, or inborn prejudices and biases? They do and they don't. So it's not like a baby is born and, you know, doesn't like black people or doesn't like gay people or Asian people. Babies don't have any specific biases, but they are very quick to develop them. Very early on, for instance, babies prefer to look at people who look like those that they're raised with. So a baby who is raised with all white people will prefer to look at white people, all black people look at black people. In one study involving Ethiopians in Israel, babies get to look at white people and black people. Those babies don't show any preference. And it's not just sort of looking. And you can say, well, who cares about what babies like to look at? Later on, these preferences manifest themselves in all sorts of biases, like who they prefer to interact with, who they prefer to give toys to. 
And some of the best work on this has looked at a really surprising source of bias that's extremely powerful, more powerful in gender, more powerful in race, and it's language. So very early on, as young as you can test, babies prefer people who speak the same language that they do. And they prefer to interact with them. They prefer to make friends with them. Even a slight accent pisses babies off. And they prefer to go for somebody who doesn't have the accent. And of course, you see the same sort of biases in adults. Although for adults, it's more complicated. Adults view some accents as better than others. But one reason why we believe that language is so important for the baby is that language is a wonderful cue to social group. And if somebody speaks a different language than you, or even a different accent, it's an excellent indicator they're not from your community. And because babies are extremely prone to split the world up into in-group versus out-group, they look towards language as a way to do it. Tell me a little bit more about the, the kind of in-group, out-group distinction and how babies draw that. Well, the question could be asked about babies and could be asked about you and me. There, there's no human who's perfectly impartial from one group to another. There's nobody who loves their own child to exactly the same extent that they love someone else's child. There's no one who, who, who doesn't feel more of a connection to their friends and their lovers and their family than, than to strangers. So we split the world up into in-group and out-group. And that way, we split it up into countries. We split it up into ethnicities, into clubs. And one of the findings from baby studies is that babies are extremely willing to do so. They come in predisposed to break the world up into us versus them. And you can demonstrate that in the most minimal ways. So one experiment that's been done with adults has recently been extended to kids. You just randomly split them up. You say, you guys, for adults, you say, let's flip a coin. Heads go in this corner, tails go in this corner. It's utterly random. It's obvious it's random. For kids, you hand out different colored gloves. And it turns out even this ridiculously small manipulation into splitting people up has a powerful effect. We prefer our own group, even if it's just a heads group or a tails group, the yellow gloves or the blue gloves group. We like to give them more and we are happier punishing the other group. So one of the, the aspects of human nature, which I think has caused you know, maybe the most trouble, is present from the very get-go. And I think there's a study that, that you've talked about in the past revolving around kind of babies and, and graham crackers or something like that. I'd love for you to share that research example. So this is some work done by Karen Wynn. You, you do a study where uh, babies are get to choose between two things they like. And I think they're, I forget exactly, I think they're graham crackers versus Cheerios. So babies, you know, like one versus other, whatever, they choose one. And then they watch someone else make a choice. And the weird thing that you wouldn't have expected is babies are very sensitive to what the other person does. So they like when somebody chooses the same thing that they do and they get annoyed when somebody doesn't. In some of the studies, they get an so annoyed when somebody chooses something different. So I choose graham crackers, you choose Cheerios. They get so annoyed that they want to see that person punished. And Karen, in her work, sees this as a sort of grounds for ideological conflict later on, where as adults, we can get enraged when someone makes different choices from us. Now, when the stakes are very high, like going to war or abortion laws or whatever, that's kind of understandable. But even when the stakes are ridiculously low, we freak out. And this too, I think, is part of our initial equipment. For listeners who, who may not have as good of an understanding of, of kind of the concept of evolutionary psychology 
and how these biases sort of get programmed into us via evolution. I'd love for you to just kind of explain that concept. Well, just like our, our bodies, our brains are the products of natural selection. And so what this means is the fact that we think the way we do, that we have the tastes and motivations and desires that we have is to a large extent because our ancestors who did this reproduce more than those that didn't. And this is pretty obvious for some things. So it's kind of a no brainer why people like sex. People like sex because their ancestors who didn't like sex or would rather copulate with a rock or a tree didn't produce offspring while our ancestors that did like sex did considerably better at producing offspring. It's why we love our children. If you didn't love your children, if you ate your children, well, your children wouldn't do too well in life. It's why we prefer to drink water than to eat mud. A lot of our tastes and desires at the low level make perfect sense for a creature that's been evolved through survival and reproduction. And this pertains to morality as well. So it was, it was one thought before the time of Darwin that evolution is, is sort of red in tooth and claw. Evolution is a relentlessly selfish force, making us care only for ourselves. But we know, and Darwin knew, that this is nonsense. Evolution makes us kind because creatures who are kind in certain special ways, like favoring their family over their friends, engaging in long-term alliances and mutual benefit, animals like that do better than animals that don't. If you and I were in the savanna and you cooperated with people and helped them out and, and took care of your family and all I cared about was myself, well, your genes would do better than mine. And so evolution has shaped our morality as well. But this is kind of the tragic part because from an evolutionary point of view, who gives, who gives a damn about strangers? Strangers are nothing. Strangers are at best potential threats. And so the fact that we right now recognize that we owe a moral obligation to strangers, we can't kill them, we should even help them under some circumstances, suggests that we've used our intelligence to transcend evolution. And of course, we do this all the time. We've evolved perceptual systems that allow us to look over the world and see trees and water and so on. But through science, we understand that what we're really seeing are objects composed of tiny particles and fields of energy. Similarly, we have a sort of Stone Age morality that's evolved through evolution, but we're also smart enough to transcend it, to use our, our capacity for introspection and for generalized generalization and logic to realize that some of our innate morality is unfair and capricious and that we can do better. And I think that that really dovetails into your somewhat controversial view on the concept of empathy. Before we kind of dive into that, I'd love to understand, how do you define the concept of empathy? Yeah, that's a good question, because um, people see the title of my book, Against Empathy, and they freak out. I, I have a, a collection of emails like you wouldn't believe. And, and I think it's because it has different meanings. Uh, it's one of the issues. because some Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. 
I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Some people use empathy just to mean everything good. So we should have more empathy means we should be kind, we should be loving, we should be moral. And I have no objection to that. Other people use empathy in a narrower sense, having to do with understanding. And I don't have an objection to, to that either. Although understanding other people is morally neutral. So you do need to understand other people to make the world a better place, but you also need to understand other people if you're going to seduce them or con them or torture them or bully them. The sort of empathy I'm interested in is putting yourself in someone else's shoes, seeing the world as they do, feeling their pain. And a lot of people have argued this is really fundamental to morality. Empathy serves as a spotlight that zooms us in on people and makes them matter. And what I argue in my book is that this is mistaken, that empathy has all sorts of terrible effects. It makes us biased because we empathize with those who look like us and who are attractive and, and who belong to our group over others. It may, it's enumerate because empathy makes us value the one over the many. And it leads to capricious and arbitrary and often cruel acts. A lot of violence is prompted by empathy for a victim. It leads to stupid policy decisions. It's because of empathy that governments and populations care more about a little girl stuck in a well than they do about a crisis like climate change. And even in personal relationships, empathy can mess you up. An example I like to think about because it's from my own life is that if my teenage son comes up to me and he's freaking out because he hasn't done his homework and it's due tomorrow and he's very anxious, it's not, I'm not being a good father if I feel empathy for him and I feel his anxiety and I share his anxiety and get anxious myself. I'm best as a parent if I have some distance, if I, you know, if I say, dude, calm down, let's, uh, let's take a break, let's go for a walk, and I love him, and I understand him, but I don't feel what he feels, and I think it's the same for friendships, it's the same for romantic relationships, if I'm really depressed, I don't want my wife to see me and get depressed herself, I want her to try to cheer me up and try to make my life better. What we want from people, and what makes it a better world, isn't echoing their feelings. It's responding lovingly and intelligently to them. So your, your definition is empathy is essentially kind of the feeling or of sharing the emotions or kind of actually feeling the pain or, the, or whatever someone else is feeling, as opposed to this sort of broader understanding that might encompass compassion and other things that are sort of could be defined as distinct from the, you know, looking at it from kind of the psychology literature. That's, that's exactly right. And, this is, and, and I'm using it the way a lot of people in the field use it. I'm not, you know, I'm not the language police. I'm totally comfortable people use empathy any way they want. And some people will use empathy to fold together all sorts of things, some that are good, some that are bad. The point of my book, the point of my argument, isn't about how to use the words. It's about how we should live our lives. And, and the case I make is that feeling the feelings of others, whatever you choose to call it, is a really, really lousy moral guide. It leads to messy policy. It leads to bad relationships. And we're so much better when we try to understand people, when we care for people, when we care about people, but we don't feel their pain. So when people hear your, your stance about empathy, what are some of the kind of typical reactions? So 
I've been making this argument for a while and I've gotten some great responses, some very intelligent responses. People will argue that um, maybe empathy isn't perfect, but without it, we couldn't be moral people. If we didn't feel others suffering, we'd never be motivated to help them. People argue that those without empathy are cruel people, they're psychopaths, they're monsters. People argue that children start off being empathic and, and then uh, compassion, other things emerge from it, so it's an important start. And there's many other arguments. And I think it turns out that all of them are mistaken. I think, for instance, there's a lot of evidence that you could be kind to somebody and care about them. And you could also want to make it a better world in general without feeling empathy. And it turns out there's been a lot of research where you measure people's empathy. And then you see, how does that connect with what kind of good person they are? And the answer is, it doesn't. It doesn't. If I wanted to know whether you're going to try to rob me or kill me or even just, you know, talk badly about me, your score on an empathy test will tell me very little. Actually, pretty much nothing. The real predictors of bad behavior in people are a kind of malicious nature and lack of self-control. But empathy, in whatever sense, feeling the pain of others, understanding others, seems to play no role at all in good behavior or bad behavior. And that's a finding that's, that's backed up by a lot of science, right? It's not just kind of conjecture. Absolutely. There's, there's an industry involving testing people's empathy and looking at the relationships between their behavior. There's a lot of research where you put people in fMRI scanners and you look at the brain responses reflecting to empathy. So one of the cool findings, for instance, is, you know, there, there's this metaphor, I think, made, made most famous by Bill Clinton, where you say, I feel your pain. And it turns out we literally feel other people's pain. If I was to watch you get stabbed in the hand and my brain was wired up to an fMRI machine, it would reveal that parts of my brain would light up that would be pretty much the same parts that would light up if my own hand was being stabbed. So there's a lot of research on this. And the research shows what I've been saying. The research shows that the individual measures of empathy don't predict good behavior, bad behavior. They show that the neural measures of empathy are tremendously biased. So this brings us back to the in-group, out-group work we were talking about before. They did a study in, in Europe where they, they tested European soccer fans. So you're sitting there, your brain is all, you know, being measured, and you watch somebody else being shocked. And half the people are told, you see this guy being shocked? He's a fan of your soccer team. Turns out when you, when you do this, people say they feel high empathy and their brains reflect it. Parts of the brains light up that correspond to empathy. But then in another group, they're told exactly, they're shown exactly the same thing, but they're told, see this guy, he's a fan of another soccer team. You do that, the neural correlates of empathy shut down. You don't feel empathy. And in fact, you watch him be shocked. You feel a bit of pleasure. So, so the studies confirm what we knew from other sources, which is how, how incredibly biased empathy can be. And I'd love to dig in a little bit more to, to kind of the bias effects on empathy and, you know, things like racial bias, et cetera, and how they can impact or how empathy can kind of negatively create outcomes. So there's bias in a couple of ways. There's sort of a natural bias we carry with us. So one study looked at people's empathic reactions to the suffering of those they found disgusting, like homeless people or drug addicts. And it turns out empathy is just silent. If someone grosses you out, you don't feel their pain at all. You don't feel anything for them. Other studies find that attractiveness plays a real role. If there's an attractive, say there's an attractive eight-year-old girl, a pretty little eight-year-old girl, and she's in pain, you freak out. You feel great empathy. 
Someone less attractive, someone maybe a bit scary, no empathy at all. So our natural empathic responses are biased. And similarly, empathy can be moved around by politicians, by rhetoricians, by people who want to make a moral point to try to get you to feel empathy for this person or that person. Sometimes it's done for causes you might think of as good. Like when you direct a lot of concern and focus on the, the, the drowned Syrian child, where you say, look, you, know, you should feel great empathy for, for his family and for, for the suffering he must have gone through. So let's use that to motivate some good policy. But often empathy is directed to get you to hate people. If I want to get you to support attacking some other country or expelling some group from the United States, one excellent way to do so is to tell you about this group's victims and get you to feel empathy for them. It's an observation as old as Adam Smith in the 1700s, which is when you watch somebody suffer and you feel empathy for them, you feel commensurate rage for those who have caused that suffering. And this is no secret among those who want to uh, motivate uh, cruelty and violence. And you've touched on a number of examples in the past of, of ways that empathy can negatively impact public policy. I'd love to to hear the story of, I think it's Willie Horton or, or some of the other examples that you've shared previously about how, you know, kind of one story of empathy can, can lead us to make what ends up being a, a really terrible decision. So there are countless examples of this. You might say that right now, going to the politics that we're dealing with at this very moment, bailing out a company because you feel bad for its workers may have great short-term effects for the workers and then sort of scratch your empathic itch, but have horrible long-term effects in the future. But let's go to the Willie Horton case. The Willie Horton case from the 1980s. It was during, it came up during a presidential election between uh, the competition between Michael Dukakis and his Republican opponent. And what came out was that when Dukakis was governor, he had a furlough program. And in a furlough program where prisoners are released for a little while, somebody named Willie Horton was released. And Willie Horton went out and did some terrible things. He raped somebody, he assaulted somebody. And Willie Horton was a large and threatening African-American. So his opponents put pictures of Willie Horton everywhere. As soon as this incident happened, the furlough program was shut down. And Dukakis was condemned to apologize for it over and over again while people were stoked up by the terrible things that this man had done. Now, it turns out that this furlough program, by most measures, made the world a better place. That is, even including the crimes that were done by prisoners released on furlough, the fact that uh, the furlough program exists led to less crime overall. And so a rational person would say, hey, well, let's do the numbers. Apparently, the furlough program is doing good. But that's not how we think. That's not how the mind works. The mind, we are swayed by these sympathetic cases. Our empathy is triggered. And so we end up doing acts like shutting down the furlough program that in the end cause more harm than good. I mean, another example, just to get you thinking about is a hypothetical example where imagine there's a vaccine program and a little girl gets very sick. We'd probably shut down the program, even if a dozen people are saved by the program each year because you could empathize with the suffering of a little girl who gets sick and her family and everything, but you can't empathize with the suffering of people who would have got sick but didn't. Empathy works in a here and now. It, it feeds off real cases of suffering and ignores other considerations. Or take a third example, which example I begin my book with, which is school shootings. Mass shootings. There, I begin my book with the story of Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, which is 
horrific mass murder of, of 20 children. And I point out that this causes an enormous amount of focus and concern. And many people would view this as the biggest policy problem we have. But it also turns out that when it comes to, to, to murders, to homicides in the United States, mass shootings take up about 0.1% of them. What that means is if you could snap your fingers and make it so that there'd never be a mass shooting in the United States again, nobody would notice. It would be indistinguishable from random noise. And so these are cases where a good, wise, compassionate policymaker says, I'm going to ignore the pull of my emotions. Particularly, I'm going to put, ignore my racist bias. I'm going to ignore these things that really cause my tears to flow and ask myself the hard question of how to make the world a better place. And I, I think these are cases where empathy leads us astray. I think there are individual cases. There's cases of charitable giving. There's a lot of people who give to charity, and I, I used to be one of them and still am to some extent, where I give to things for sentimental reasons, for the cuteness of the picture, for personal connections. And this is a lousy way to do it. When we give to charity, we shouldn't be trying to give ourselves a warm glow or happy buzz. We should be trying to make the world a better place. And so I'd like to see a shift away from empathy-based decisions towards decisions that are more based on reason. And, you know, it, it's funny, the the example that you give at the beginning of the book about mass shootings, and, and, and I think it was like 500 deaths from that in the last 10 years or so, or I don't remember the exact stats, but that made me think of, of another instance. I was, I was watching the news the other day and they were talking, they were arguing about terrorism and how, and, and they, they threw out the stat of how many people had died from terrorism in the United States in the last 10 or 15 years. And it was like 150 people or so. I mean, it was, it was, it was a staggeringly low number when you think about the fact that it's, it's such a huge focal point. And the, that example and the Willie Horton example for me, you know, of course, when I picked up the book, I think I had kind of the reaction of everybody. It's like, why is this guy against empathy? Right. And then, and the more that I kind of started understanding that and, and those concepts of how this one vivid story, right. Which it can, can really mislead us into making what are objectively worse decisions for our society. It, it was pretty fascinating. I find these stories very moving and how they illustrate how we can go wrong. And I, it, it's not as if everything is it, that we should blame empathy for everything. There's all sorts of other things going on here. For the Willie Horton case, certainly racism played a huge role. I think even if empathy was sort of stripped from our heads, powerful stories will always move us. But the argument I make in my book is empathy is so vulnerable to these biases. Empathy always searches for the one. It always zooms us in on the one person. It ignores the many it ignores hypotheticals, it ignores statistics. And so it misguides us over what's important and what matters. And it leads to, to lousy policy. And, and, and to some extent, this brings us back to our earlier discussion of the definitions of empathy, which is the solution isn't that we should become cold-blooded monsters. The solution is that we should still feel for people, feel real kindness and concern and compassion for people. But we should try to rid ourselves of the, the habit we have of zooming in on individuals. And so towards the end of my book, I discuss the distinction between empathy and compassion, between, you know, feeling the pain of others, empathy, versus just wanting to help them, compassion. And I even talk about some fascinating work on meditation and meditative practices, which both illustrate the distinction. They get people to do empathy training, get people to do compassion training. They find all sorts of differences. But also they show that it's possible to make yourself 
somewhat less empathic, but also kinder, which I think would be an indispensable skill for all of us, but particularly people like doctors and nurses and first responders and police and firefighters, people who deal with emotional and difficult situations, the best of them can shut down their empathic responses while still caring for other people. I'd love to to dig into that a little bit more, the distinction between empathy and compassion. And we, we've actually had a previous episode where we went deep on, on the concept of compassion and, and distinguished it from empathy. And in that episode, we touched a little bit on kind of the idea of, of the, the main negative thing about empathy was the idea of empathy burnout and how you can kind of you know, become overwhelmed with trying to bear the cross or feel the emotions of, of the suffering of others. And, and if you instead focus on how to help them, you can be more proactive. But I'd love to hear you know, a little bit more about your take on kind of the distinction between those two things. So my take is exactly that take, where I got into it actually by reading a bit of Buddhist philosophy. So there's a lot of Buddhist philosophy which asks the question of how are you to be a good person? And the Buddhist philosophers distinguish between what they call sentimental compassion and great compassion. And sentimental compassion is what we've been talking about as empathy. It's feeling other people's pain and feeling other people's suffering. And the Buddhist scholars say, don't do this. You know, it might give you a short-term buzz, but in the long run, it's bad for you. It'll burn you out. It will exhaust you. I mean, people, the term burnout, I think, is from the 70s, but, but hundreds of years ago, people were worried about this. So the alternative is great compassion, which is, I'm just calling compassion, which is caring about people, loving them, but not feeling their pain. And the cool thing is that this great compassion seems to be pleasant, invigorating, energizing. It makes you a better person, but it also makes you a happier person. And so a lot of contemporary meditative practice uses this called loving kindness meditation, uses these techniques to motivate people to be better people. And one argument is that they work so well because the meditative practice dampens your empathic responses. And a lot of what I've been talking about now is theology and philosophy and so on, but there's real evidence for this. There's um, some wonderful work done by the neuroscientist Tanya Singer in collaboration with the biologist and Buddhist monk Matthew Ricard, where they put people in scanners and they have them meditate in different ways, exercise their empathy or exercise their compassion, and they find all sorts of different responses. And what they find is, inevitably, you were just much better feeling compassionate. I'm curious, you, you touched on earlier, and I'm starting to think about, you know, how can somebody listening start to implement this in their lives? What is a, the concept of kind of a warm glow altruist? So this is, uh, I'm not sure where the phrase came from, but it was discussed by the, by the philosopher Peter Singer, where he talks about how some people give to charity. And he says some people give to charity, and what they do is they have some money and they spread it around to all different charities. They'll give a little bit to Oxfam and a bit to Save the Whales and a bit to their, their local arts community and a bit to the high school football team, and they won't give that much any time. And, and they spread it around, and this is either consciously or unconsciously, a wonderful tactic to feel good about yourself. Each of the different charities you give, you get a little dopamine blast of feeling good. But Singer points out, this is if, if you want to feel good, you, you've come across a great technique. If you want to make the world a better place, if you really want to help people, do it differently. If you really want to help people, figure out where your money and your resources could do the most good and put them there. Ignore pictures of adorable babies, uh, but what you should do is go online and see what people say about this, this charity. Does the charity uh, test its outcomes? Is it effective? Try to figure out how to make the world a better place. 
And this applies even beyond money. I have a friend of mine who's a, a wealthy Yale professor, and she would go work in a homeless shelter. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That makes the world a better place. But the problem was she was doing this instead of giving money. And the truth is with her salary, she could have given a lot more money to do a lot more good than her time at the homeless shelter, which could have been done by anybody. And that sounds, I, I, I know I've spoken to people, that sounds really cold. It sounds cold and unromantic. And, and what about the warm feelings of connection and so on? And my response is, it depends what you want. If you want to feel good about yourself, like a special person, like a real helper, a, a, a real, get a real connection and make yourself a, a man of the people and all that stuff. Well, there's all sorts of things you do. Be a warm glow giver. But if you want to really help people do something different. So it depends on your goals. My feeling is, and I am an, an endless optimist about human nature, is that most people really care about other people and want to make the world a better place. And if you remind them, if you prod them, if you, you get them to recognize that their emotional pulls are a poor guide to their behavior, they will work hard on doing better. I know I know, I have. And I think that that, that to me was kind of the, the crux of this argument and, and helped me really understand it, which is what you just said, that your emotional pulls often mislead you, right? And, and that if we kind of zoom out from this spotlight of, of getting really caught up in the emotions and the vividness in the story, we can make what are objectively more rational, more kind of statistically relevant and important interventions, as opposed to getting caught up in this kind of emotional whirlwind. That That's a perfect summary of my argument. And, you know, I, some people could be skeptical. You asked about responses to my ideas. And one response I often get is, well, maybe you're right, but what are we going to do about it? We're, we're always going to be captured by our emotions and our gut feelings. But again, I'm more optimist. I'm more optimistic. And I, I give a, an analogy to racism, which is we're naturally racist. There, there's a thousand studies showing we're biased to favor our own, even in cases where we really don't want to and don't think we are. But does that mean we have to throw up our hands and say we're stuck with it? Not at all. There's all sorts of ways we could circumvent and avoid our, our racism. We can engage in practices that diminish it. We could set up technical means within our society, like a blind reviewing or quota systems that, and they're very different ideas, but what they share is they take the decision out of our hands. They avoid our biases. If you want to be a good person, you should be aware of your biases, both your moral biases, but also your rational biases and so on. And then think hard about how to override them. I think that's a great point as well, which is that in order to be to in, to to move beyond these biases, we first have to cultivate an awareness of them, and and in many ways the the dialogue around this can often sort of cut off the conversation before we really get to the point of acknowledging and accepting that biases do exist. That's right. That's right. So some so to some extent, I think the great contribution of psychology to modern times has been making us aware of our biases and limitations. Where some psychologists go wrong, I think, is that they jump to the conclusion that we're nothing more than our biases and limitations. And I think instead there's a duality that we've been talking about where we, we are biased, we are limited, we are swayed by irrational things, but we're also smart enough to know it. And we can use our intelligence and our self-control and, 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 you know, and our desire to make a real difference to try to override 
the more emotional parts of ourselves. And, you know, we're just talking here about making decisions, making moral decisions and moral actions. I have nothing against empathy in general. Empathy is a wonderful source of pleasure, of intimacy. It's part of sex. It's part of sports. It's part of reading a novel or watching a movie. It's just as a moral guide, it's a sort of thing that we should really distrust. You know, for a man who who is against empathy, I think you have a very uplifting view of the of the direction of kind of the the human future, and I and I think that's a great way to think about it in the sense of I I think you're totally right that many psychologists think that we're you know get almost too far to the other extreme and saying you know we can't overcome any of these biases, but I really like your sort of uplifting perspective that we have to be aware and know that these biases are real, but you know we also have the the logic and the reason and the ability to move beyond them and build a better future. Yeah, I mean, you can see it. You can see the, his, the intellectual history, not just of psychology, but how people talk and, and in newspapers and, and blogs and online, how we think about ourselves, where there was a time, the time of enlightenment, where we thought of ourselves as perfectly rational beings, for the most part, the age of reason. And then it swung. And where we are now is basically, many of my colleagues would say, people are idiots. We're just, you know, incredibly limited. We're just, we're just so foolish in so many ways. And one of the many goals of my book is to try to push that pendulum back, back a bit to acknowledge all of these limitations, but also to have this optimistic view that, that puts a lot of focus on our reason. After all, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation about our biases. We wouldn't know they were biases unless we were, we, we had this other more powerful, more rational capacity. So for somebody who's listening and wants to kind of concretely implement the concepts we've been talking about in their, in their lives, what are some, what's kind of one simple piece of homework that you would give them as a starting place? Well, one thing which we've touched upon a few times here is meditative practice, which is something I'm working on myself. But I think there's a more general answer, which is, and, and this is an answer regarding all of our biases, which is to in a very, when you were very calm and not caught up in anything, look at your life and look at your decisions and try to contemplate the extent to which you're being held sway by irrational biases. And then if you think you are, if you think, for instance, that some of your actions are short-sighted or too empathic or racist or something like that, and you don't like it, you could work to combat it. And you could work to combat it in clever ways. I have a friend of mine, he gives the simplest example. He wants to give to charity, but he knows that when it comes, when he's asked to give to charity, he says, well, I have other personal ways I can use the money. You know, I could go out for a drink or whatever. He feels bad about this. He doesn't feel like this is the right way to live, but he can't fight it. So at one point he said, look, here's what I should do. And he set up automatic deductions on his paycheck. Very easy to do. So now he could still change his mind. He could shut it down, but now he doesn't have to decide whether to help, he has to decide whether or not to help. He's changed, he changed what the baseline is. It's sort of the moral equivalent if you're on a diet of not, you know, keeping giant bags of M&Ms in your house. The moral equivalent if you're trying to give up smoking, don't go to a bar where everybody's smoking. We could be smart enough to recognize, I'm going to fall into this trap, but to then think and plan ahead so that the trap can be circumvented. And that, in very general terms, is, I think, how we can help defeat those aspects of ourselves that we believe should be defeated. 
for listeners who, who want to learn more, where can people find you and, and your books online? I don't have, I have a, an academic website, which you could find by just typing in Paul Bloom Yale, but I'm mostly on Twitter these days. I'm just one word, Paul Bloom at Yale. And, um, and I'm endlessly tweet about these issues, about academic gossip, about politics and some excellent bad jokes. So that's where I recommend people go to. Well, Paul, thank you so much for, for sharing these insights. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. And I think, you know, on the surface, it seems sort of very controversial to be opposed to empathy. But I think peeling back the hood a little bit, it, it, it definitely, there's a lot of merit to, to this framework and, and your understanding of reality. And I think the acknowledgement that we have biases, but also the kind of rational optimism that we can work through them and build a better future is, is something that's, uh, that's really inspiring. So thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing this wisdom. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I would love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we just talked about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes at scienceofsuccess.co. Just hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 